Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the first episode of When Sky Invented Football, a reflection on what is good and what is bad about the modern game. What this podcast certainly isn't is an old man's lament that football isn't as good as it used to be. I started Britain's first national football fanzine off the ball in the mid-1980s precisely because it had a stack of problems and I wanted football and football culture to get better. The thing is, I still do. Yet if you listen to the Premier League's cheerleaders, you'd get the sense that everything is now for the best in the best of all possible footballing worlds and that this happy state began in 1992 when Sky invented football. For the first episode of When Sky Invented Football, I've come to London, South East Seven, and the home of Charlton Athletic, the Valley, standing behind the huge main stand here. Charlton Athletic embody many of the big issues that were present in football in the 1980s and are still present in football today. The question of who is fit to run a football club. And I'm joined by Dave Thompson. And Dave was a member of an organisation called CARD, which stood for Dave? The coalition against Roland de Chatelet. And Roland de Chatelet was until very recently the owner of Charlton Athletic. But your story Dave and Charlton Athletic's story of fan activism as I say goes way back to the 1980s because this ground where we're standing now, this proud old football stadium was a place that Charlton Athletic couldn't call home for seven years. What was the background to that? Uh, That's right, Adrian, seven years. Um, 1985, we turned up one day for a home game to be given A4 leaflets telling us that we'd be moving away and all our future games would be at Crystal Palace. It was the worst possible decision. What explanation did the club have? There was an explanation came out in the weeks and months that followed that to do with a legal wrangle between the then owners of the club, which was Sunley Holdings, uh, John Fryer and other characters, Sunley were based down in Croydon, but also the main dispute was about land at the back of the West End, where we're standing now, um, with the previous um, owner of the club, Michael Glickstein, who was at that point effectively the freeholder. And Sunley were builders, house builders? Sunley were the house building company at the time. Obviously there was a potential property play, but none of that clearly uh, came to fruition here as far as the value was concerned. Um, and I don't think Michael Glickstein, to be fair to him, was involved in any of that at all. He just he just wanted to do something that I think he, he could probably have got away with and the club could have stayed, but clearly it suited suddenly to move us. There are famous photographs of shopping trolleys lying on their side on the pitch and on the terraces here at Charlton. When your ground's in that state, you fear the very worst. Absolutely. At times we thought we'd never come back. Five years at Crystal Palace and two years at Upton Park when would it ever end? So what did change? New ownership. Basically there was a will within the club to come back. Uh, It was very clear that we couldn't survive long term away from the valley. The gates were dismal, uh, fans weren't travelling and the soul of the club was being ripped out. So um, something had to change and we had to come back to the valley. And it was fan-led, we should point that out, shouldn't we? There was a a fanzine written by a guy called Rick Everett called Voice of the Valley. There was also a political party called The Valley which stood for the local council election. I know you didn't stand, but you were very much part of that fan activism. Yeah, The Valley Party was started really in response to frustration that the club at the time and the supporters had with the local council. Greenwich Council frustrated several planning attempts to get back to The Valley 
and it became pretty clear that um, we were going to have to do something to get the council's attention. So the Valley Party was formed, Recover It was instrumental in that, and we stood in all of the seats across the borough um, at the local elections. Because as we stand here, it's a fantastic traditional setting for a football stadium there's a tower block just behind what is the away end there and then right behind I mean we're standing in quite a a large car park but immediately behind then a strip of terraced houses and you can see behind that some more the roofs of more terraced housing I mean to me it's the it's the proper place for a football ground but I'm guessing if you're a local resident if the club's disappeared and it's it's no longer there for a few years it becomes quite attractive to say "Well, well don't bring it back well, I am a local resident, so I kind of I lived with that and understood it, um, but clearly always wanted the club to come back. I guess there was a feeling among some residents um, that, that they were rather the club didn't come back, but the majority of the borough felt differently, and uh, ultimately that's what we got. So you fought that fantastic campaign, and I've been inside this ground when there have been 26,000 people here. It's got a rocking atmosphere. However, in recent years those glory days of the Premier League which followed when Charlton got back to the valley have ebbed away the club dropped down to League One and you've had Roland de Châtelet as your owner and we introduced you as having your credentials from CARD the coalition against Roland de Châtelet tell us a little bit about him de Châtelet was welcomed when he first came to the club he was a very wealthy individual a Belgian businessman he acquired the club lock stock and barrel from two previous owners who didn't really have the funds to run the club, uh, safe to say. And when he when he took over, he was welcomed in. He was the wealthiest owner we'd ever had. And clearly, everybody was optimistic that that might lead to success for the club. So what happened? Roland's idea, when he, when he acquired us, he bought five other clubs, I think, across Europe very quickly, within 12 months. He, he told us um, when he bought the club that he saw a gap in the market in terms of the impact of financial fair play. And he had a model um, by owning a number of clubs that would allow him to transfer players without paying fees and effectively gain a benefit. And that was was the whole reason. Um, When financial fair play um, unravelled fairly quickly, the game was up. Um, De Chatelet lost all interest. Uh, He didn't come here after the first season and he was only here, I think, once. Lost all interest and we've suffered ever since with neglect and effectively um, him starving the club of money. And again, richest owner we've ever had, and yet we were the poorest probably we've ever been, and the club has suffered as a result. Just talk me through this business model then, because you had financial fair play being brought in, which was designed to prevent clubs effectively buying their way to success. Very interesting when you look at the top of the Premier League and the Championship, but that was the plan with financial fair play. So his idea was to circumvent that somehow by transferring players up and down in terms of the quality of the respective leagues they played in, but without incurring any financial penalties because they were all transferred within the same business. Yep, that's it. He owned uh, Standard Liège, um, which was the you know his largest club effectively in Belgium. Um, Standard Liège were Champions League at the time, so that was top of the pyramid, if you like. Charm was acquired, I guess, very much as a second, and then he bought a succession of other clubs, Alcoran in Spain, uh, Kohlhaas Jena in Germany, Upest in Hungary, as well as a second club in Belgium, which uh, he swapped ownership with his wife to acquire that. But that gave him a stable of clubs and a, a pecking order and a pyramid, if you like. And I'm sure the plan was to move players between those clubs to prevent paying fees, reduce his um, exposure to financial fair play and gain an advantage. So when did Charlton fans start feeling uneasy about the Chatelet? 
within the first couple of months, I'm afraid. Um, as soon as he arrived, big money, you, you expect the club to be supported financially. The first thing he did was sell Yanka Morgan, who was our top scorer and you know a main attacking threat. Uh, Camorgan was sold. He sold Dale Stevens as well to Brighton, who's gone on to have a very good career in the in the Premier League. So that was the that was the start point, and it went downhill pretty rapidly from then. So when was that? When did he take over? He took over in the first part of 2014, January, I think. So we're talking about five years ago, and Charlton were then in the Championship. Yep, uh, he came in. Chris Powell was the manager. We lost Camorgan. We lost Stevens. I think we got a couple of players we'd never heard of um, who didn't really feature to be honest and before much longer Chris Powell was sacked as well. How did fans react then? You'd fought so hard to get your club back and bring Charlton back to the valley. You've got a history of fan activism. How did fans organise against De Chatelet? Well it took some time to get enough momentum to do that. Um, as I say fans were unhappy from the first six months of him being here but it was probably the early part of 2015 when there was a call for a supporters meeting um, we got together in an old cinema building in Woolwich and we effectively talked through several hundred fans there talked through what was happening at the club but at that point we decided that all of the various supporters groups would come together in a coalition and that we would stand against Roland de Chatelet and attempt to force him to change the way the club was being run or to get him out of the club altogether. Hence CARD, the coalition against Roland de Chatelet, different supporter groups coming together to unite on this one single point. Yep, that was it. So what was his strategy? Um, Initially it was to affect him, hit him commercially. Uh, So we call for a boycott of spending money at the ground, in the bars, the food outlets, the shop. There was no outright call for a a boycott of matches, but what we did do was ask supporters not to renew their season tickets early, and we wanted to see what commitment he would make to the playing staff during the close season, delay purchase if you were going to purchase until as late as possible, or even go match to match. And we did that, we pushed that every year, It was initially a commercial issue and then the secondary part to it was we started with the uh, in-game protests. Um, So we disrupted the matches and we started to then look at every other way we could influence the Chatelini's management team to get the message that they weren't welcome and that he really needed to pack up and go. How were matches disrupted? I guess the, the one most people will remember was the first one when we threw three or 4,000 plastic pigs onto the pitch, um, which stopped the match for five minutes and drew a huge um, media attention to what was going on. And that was the start, and we followed that up with... What was, what was the symbolism of plastic pigs? We were looking around, uh, trying to buy in quantity uh, something that was throwable, and pigs was the biggest thing available in the market at the time. So there was nothing beyond that. Pigs to start with. We subsequently put beach balls on, um, inflatable beach balls, and there were spongy taxis thrown at another game. So uh, pigs was the one everybody remembers. And there were some fans who went even further, weren't there? The group known as the B20. Tell me about them. Well, after the first, I guess it was the first couple of years, you know, we were doing everything we could to frustrate De Chatelet and Catrian Mir, who was the CEO here, who was responsible for a lot of the antipathy, to be honest, towards the pair of them. But after a while, we realised De Chatelet wasn't coming to games. He wasn't feeling this himself. So we began to move our attention to, towards Belgium and to hit him in his hometown of St Truden. 
So there were a number of high-profile visits to St Truden, but the B20 was a, a part of the coalition against Roland de Châtelet, and it was, I think it was Belgium 20, that gives you a clue as to how many of them were involved. And they went across fairly frequently and um, got up to all sorts in Belgium, which, within the law, but all sorts which embarrassed him, and we know it really got to him um, as much as some of the stuff we'd done at the Valley. All sorts, including disrupting his birthday party, I think. Yes, he famously told us or through his um, chief executive, Catria Mayer, that he, he was a big Charlton fan and that he watched every single game, even though he never came here. He watched them all on a live feed, but on the occasion of his 70th birthday, whilst the game was on, um, we were playing Swindon, I think, in, on televised, um, he was spotted at a restaurant that he owns as part of the uh, complex at St Truden Football Ground and the B20 unfurled a large banner with Roland and Catrian out um, to disrupt his birthday, which uh, we understand he was very unhappy about. They, they put the banner sort of in the window of the restaurant outside we, we where did. he was eating. He, ha- he had a prime table, as you would imagine, by the window and um, they stood outside and unfurled the banner, which, uh, yeah, that really got to him. And he had some curious attitudes towards scouting, didn't he? He did. Um, We found out fairly early on that um, I think the officials at the club were directed, the management team were directed via uh, a Belgian student in his 20s, um, a chap called Thomas Dreisen. Uh, Dreisen, it appears, um, did everything on a computer at home. Um, He had some algorithms or he looked at FIFA. I don't know what he did, Um, but it was at home and all the recommendations on who we should get, who we should sell, all went via De Châtelet and he had a veto effectively for a number of years whilst De Châtelet was here on the decisions that the management staff at Charlton wanted to make in relation to players and it resulted us in us having some truly dreadful players turn up from abroad that the manager at Charlton hadn't been told about. They'd rock up at a training and say I'm here to play. So um, this student who had no background in professional football and didn't watch the team regularly in the flesh was studying statistics presumably studying algorithms at home making recommendations on that basis to Roland de Châtelet who then either put his thumb upwards or his thumb downwards and if the thumb went up the player got signed that was it as I say you well algorithms um, football manager watching clips on tv we don't know he never played any football never part of a football club what experience he had to qualify him to do this for you know the English championship was bizarre and it wasn't the English Championship for long, was it? Yeah, within a couple of years, we were relegated. And the writing was on the wall. The team wasn't good enough. We had a succession of managers. You know, no one seemed to long, last longer than six months, come and gone. And uh, frankly, the quality of some of them was as questionable as Thomas Dreisen. From Roland de Châtelet's point of view, though, he might say, well, look, you, you know, I tried to do my best for the football club. I'm sorry, ultimately, that it didn't work out. He did get the club as chairman back into the Championship. He wasn't siphoning money out of the club for his own pocket he wasn't trying to get the club closed down he was just the chairman and the fans didn't like him very much the club was losing money every year that was very clear all of the money the club lost was accrued as debt so we saw that building it was in the report and accounts year on year and he sold players to try to balance the books I guess he was perfectly entitled to do that in terms of the promotion back I think that was more by accident than by design it was more to do with the talent of Lee Bowyer uh, Steve Gallen and Johnny Jackson they got a side that frankly wasn't as good as some we've had but they got them playing so well 
that the club fought its way to promotion and they did that despite Roland de Chatelet. He'd, uh, he sold our joint top scorer in January, didn't replace him. Um, in the January of your promotion season? In the January of our promotion season and I honestly don't believe he wanted the club to go up. He's always described the championship as a money pit. He thinks it's crazy that all of the clubs or most of them in that division are prepared to spend huge sums of money to gamble for the Premier League. So over this time then, Charlton Athletic become an increasingly indebted club and therefore it becomes harder for whoever succeeds him to ultimately make a success of the club. Yeah, I think the debts, they're certainly 60 to between 60 and 70 million, the club's in debt. And we really couldn't see how he could sell the club to break even. So it looked like he was always going to take a hit. And the question was how much of a hit. He paid 14 million for the club plus some debt that was owed to directors. So arguably he was in for 18 to 20 million at the start and very quickly um, found himself way north of that. As I say, we're not clear what the club's been purchased for now by East Street Investments, but if you assume it's in the region of 50 million pounds, there'll be some form of loss there for the Chatelet. Throughout all this process, you're clearly very unhappy with the way that the club has been run. Did you reach out to the Football League, to the Football Association and say, look, we're not happy as fans that our club is being run in the right way. Can you help us? We did everything we could do to try and um, bring the plight of the club to the attention of everybody, including the EFL. Um, Unfortunately, we got soft soap. Everything was delayed. Everything takes a long time. And we've seen that with this takeover. Um, It's just been hugely frustrating. And we know we weren't the only ones because we were in touch with fans at other clubs who had exactly the same experience as us. One thing that strikes me hearing your story, Dave, is just how strange it is that a, a football club which had been through this really difficult situation in the 1980s presumably thought, you know, we've put that behind us now, even if we're not going to be in the top division for a few seasons, you know, we might be in the championship, we might be League One, we've got our home back, and you got your home back, but you also had an owner who ended up building up massive debt on the club and made you as fans feel, ultimately, some of you, that you you couldn't come and support your team. Yeah, when the club came back, back in 92, for us it wasn't about the club spending lots of money, we've never done that, and we've supported this club when it's had nothing, that's not been the that's not been the issue. I think the issue with De Chatelet was the complete lack of ambition once he got here and his plans with uh, financial fair play you know, didn't work out. That was, that was the real problem, was his just complete lack of interest and the way that the supporters and the club was treated by him for, for the time he was here. And it, it did get to the point where in the last two or three years um, supporters were deciding to boycott and not come. I, I myself didn't come for two and a half years. I've just today got my half-season ticket for this season under the new owners. Haven't been for two and a half years. Um, and prior to that, I'd been a season ticket holder for 37 years. So that wasn't something... I would do lightly it's just, I just felt there was nothing else I could do and, and for me it, I didn't see why I should give him that money knowing that the message you know the message made of the club um, overall what would your message be to the Football League and the FA about the owners of clubs like yours well I mean we all know about the um, fit and proper persons test but as soon as you say it everybody you know will, will start to point to examples where that's clearly not been the case something has to be done and I'm not even sure the EFL have got the right people to be able to do this to be perfectly frank um, we have to get to a position where there's some transparency around what happens about people taking over our football clubs because um, 
it's just a mess and we see it repeated all over the place. I kind of look to the model in Germany where no one's allowed to own more than 49% of the club and the supporters and supporters trust groups are involved in the rest of it. And that must, must give you a much better basis on which as a supporter to support your club, knowing that the club is secure from mismanagement and certainly from people who've got ulterior motives in terms of property developments or whatever else it may be outside of the business of the football club. Dave Thompson, it sounds like, for now at least, you've got your club back. Yeah, it's great. We have got our club back. There is money. It is coming from the Middle East. We just need to see how strong that commitment is to the club. As I said, it's never been for us about spending millions of pounds. It's just been about a club with as, as ambitious as it can be within its means. And as long as that's what we get from the new owners, then Charlton fans will be happy. Good luck to you. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Dave Thompson there. Now, I did call Roland de Chatelet and spoke to him and asked him if he wanted to respond. He said he had no comment to make. I also contacted the EFL, who declined to comment. This has been episode one of When Sky Invented Football. I'm also making a documentary of the same name with my good friend Lawrence Leonard at Yadda Yadda. Follow me at Goldberg Radio and keep listening. Thank you. (laughs) 